0: Three, two, one, zero, zero, and lift off. This is Nuclear Knowledge. A production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. Aloha and welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear Knowledge, a weekly show by the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we are advancing peace, promoting stability, and helping you to think deterrence. I'm your host, Curtis McGiffin, and I am the Vice President for Education here at NIDS, as well as a co-founder. And today's show is about the E4B Nightwatch. This is part of our series on nuclear command and control and communications and I will also be sharing some of my personal experiences here as well. The lesson presented is my own and includes data and descriptions obtained from a multitude of DOD sources and government-vetted public sources. So let's get started. From 2000 to 2004, I was an instructor navigator on the E4B. Prior to that assignment, I was an instructor navigator on the EC-135 looking glass in the early to mid-1990s. And I was also a navigator instructor and evaluator at the Navigator Training School in Texas in the late 1990s. And then finally, from 2012 to 2014, while serving on the joint staff, the NAOC mission That is, the E-4B was part of my NC-3 portfolio. So I am very familiar with this jet and this mission. The E-4B serves as the National Airborne Operations Center, or NAOC, and is a key component of the National Military Command System for the President, the Secretary of Defense, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff. You can hear about this again in a previous nuclear knowledge that I did several weeks ago. In the case of national emergency or destruction of ground command and control centers, this aircraft provides a highly mobile and survivable command, control, and communication center to direct U.S. forces to execute emergency war orders and coordinate actions by civil authorities. The conduct of E-4B operations encompasses all phases of the threat spectrum. Additionally, the E-4B provides the continental United States uh, travel support for the secretary of defense and his staff to ensure title 10 command and control connectivity to provide direct support to the president and the secretary of defense. At least one E4B NAOC is always on 24 hour alert seven days a week with a global watch team. The NAOC is on continuous alert status, ready to launch within minutes of from random basing locations in order to enhance its survivability and proximity. In addition to its national and nuclear command and control mission, the E-4B provides support to the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, which provides communications and command center capability to relief efforts during natural disasters, such as hurricanes and earthquakes. The E-4B is a militarized version of the Boeing 747-200, That's a four-engine, swept-wing, long-range, high-altitude aircraft capable of in-flight refueling. If you've ever seen a 747 or flown in one on a cargo airplane or a passenger airplane, you would find this to be a very large aircraft. Of its three decks, the main deck is divided into six functional areas. A command work area, conference room, briefing room, an operations team work area, communications area, and a rest area. An E-4B may include seating for up to 112 people, including a joint service operations team, an Air Force flight crew, maintenance and security component, communications teams, and any augmentees that they might need to have. The E-4B is protected against the effects of electromagnetic pulse and has an electrical system designed to support advanced electronics and a wide variety of communications equipment. An advanced satellite communications system provides worldwide communications for senior leaders through the Airborne Operations Center. Other improvements include nuclear and thermal effects shielding acoustic control, and improved technical control facilities and upgraded air conditioning systems for cooling all of these electrical components. The flight systems are purposefully analog with dials and gauges versus the new modern glass cockpit systems and thus maintains a really cool vintage vibe. NAOC has 42 disparate communications and data processing capabilities to include EHF or Extreme High Frequency MilStar Satellite Communications, six channel international maritime satellite communications, and a tri band radome which houses the SHF or Super High Frequency Communications antenna. All aircraft. Have undergone numerous upgrades to enhance its electronics and communications infrastructure to include some commercial off the shelf systems. Ongoing updates include replacing the Millstar data links with the AEHF or advanced extreme high frequency compatible FABT terminal, also replacing the VLF very low frequency and LF low frequency transmitters and replacing the legacy SHF with the new SSHF or survivable super high frequency enabling Inter- uninterrupted and jam resistant nuclear command and control fleet wide air force global strike command and its air force uh, is the air force single resource manager for the e4b and provides aircrew maintenance security and communication support The E-4B operations are directed by the Joint Chiefs of Staff and executed through the U.S. Strategic Command, which also provides the personnel for the battle staff that work on the NAOC itself. The E-4B evolved from the E-4A, I know that makes terrible sense, doesn't it, which had been in service since late 1974, so we are coming up on the public math 50th anniversary. The first B model was delivered to the Air Force in January of 1980, and by 1985, the remaining three A models were converted and upgraded to become B models. After SAC uh, Strategic Air Command was disestablished in 1992, the E-4B was assigned to Air Combat Command and at Air Force Base's 55th Wing, uh, which is where I served. Uh, until October 1st of 2016, when all the E-4B aircraft were reassigned to the 595th Command and Control Group at Offutt Air Force Base in Nebraska. The 595th is also assigned or aligned under Air Force Global Strike Command and its 8th Air Force, again, as of October 1st, 2016. Now, when we look at the characteristics, this is a 747-200. It's a big airplane with four turbofan engines, each producing 52,000 pounds of thrust. Uh, the airplane can weigh upwards of 800,000 pounds. That's a lot. And has 5,000 square feet of cabin space. The airplane can fly for 12 hours unrefueled. And when it's refueled, the airplane can fly for at least three days uninterrupted. It's really limited by the amount of oil that's left in the engines and the amount of water left for the crew. (laughs) And it costs about $170,000 per hour to fly this airplane, uh, give or take the cost of of a barrel of oil. Uh, So it is quite uh, expensive to operate. Uh, I mentioned that it has a crew space of up to 112, but a normal crew is about 65. And those 65, of course, the air crew and the uh, uh, the communications team and the battle staff, but also the maintenance people who take care of the airplane and the cops who guard and provide security for the airplane are assigned to the jet and constantly fly with the jet anywhere they go, um, and they're always on the move with the jet of the numbers of 747 uh, 200s built only about 36 of them remain uh, fly in flying around around the world today that's less than about 10% uh, of the remaining numbers and as six of those 36 are assigned to the United States Air Force four of them are E4s the other two are the VC25s that fly basically Air Force 1 and the backup to Air Force 1 a brief look at the history Um, And here's where we'll kind of talk about what I did. Uh, In February of 1962, which is a few months before the Cuban Missile Crisis, the mission stood up as something called the National Emergency Airborne Command Post, or NECAP. And it started with three KC-135s. By the mid-1960s, they had upgraded those to the EC-135J and called it the Night Watch a name that still continues with the airplane today. Configurations were were stationed at Andrews Air Force Base in Maryland, ready to fly the president and his national command authorities out of Washington, D.C. in the event of a nuclear attack. The new E-4s uh, replaced these EC-135J models in December of 1974, and those J models were sent off to Pacific Air Forces to do normal flying command post duties. Oddly enough, in 1994, two of those birds wound up back in my squadron in, uh, at the 7th Axe, and I had a chance to fly uh, both of those uh, in the 1990s. In th- that upgrade to the E-4B by 1985, there were two central things that went there. It was the integration of the satellite communications with that SHF antenna and the ability to do aerial refueling. Uh, were the moder- modernizations that were done there, and this ensured true global reach, both physically with the aircraft and cl- and by communications through the satellites. In 1994, NECAP, or the National Emergency Airborne Command Post, is renamed NAOC, the National Airborne Operations Center, and begins this arrangement also to support FEMA. If we recall in the early 1990s, the Cold War has ended and there is a, an interest in trying to figure out how to do more things with these assets uh, since peace was breaking out all over the world and there didn't seem like a lot of demand for nuclear command and control. And this uh, later changed in 2001 on 9-11. And here's where I want to spend a few minutes. Uh, You can look uh, in a number of different areas uh, about what the E-4B did uh, on 9-11. If you look on CNN, uh, uh, there's a video called the 9-11 mystery plane uh, that talks about this mysterious jet that was seen flying over Washington, D.C. on 9-11. Well, that was Venus 7-7. That was the call sign. And I was the navigator on that jet. Uh, So there were three. E4Bs on alert that day as we were getting ready for a national exercise. Uh, just dumb luck on the scheduling. Uh, and a very rare event to have three of the four jets up and running. And the one of the jets was uh, advanced placed out in Andrews Air Force Base, and that's where I was. We had the klaxon alert go off. We had all been up and watching the news. Uh, and then uh, we had to The klaxon went off. We had to do a quick ride and uh, people are jumping in the trucks and driving at full speed to get out to the airplane. By the time we got to the airplane, the engines were already running because the maintenance troops who were there on the airplane all the time, are engine start qualified. And so we, as the flight crew, we had to run up, you know, the three decks of the airplane and get in there and take off. And it was a survival launch. We did a real survival launch. And about 948 in the morning, we took off. And I have vivid uh, memories of standing over the pilot's shoulder right as the initial plume was lifting up over the Pentagon from the impact. So we flew the mission, uh, participated in all of those things. I'll note that uh, the the response was so fast that once we leveled off, the pilot had to get out of his seat and put his boots on. He had flown the airplane barefooted because he never got a chance to get his boots on. And anybody who's flown a 60s and 70s vintage airplane, they have a very cold nose cone. Uh, so we flew the airplane. We got back to Offutt. By then, uh, uh, President Bush's, uh, Air Force One pulled up beside us. Uh, he went in to do his briefings at Stratcom and I went into the squadron to get updated information. We had to pick up another crew, uh, place was chaos. And that was the first time I looked up at the TV in the ready room and saw the towers fall. And I had not, did not know that that had happened earlier in the day, flying all day in the missions. We ended up giving orders to go back to Andrews. Uh, Some people say rumors that we were a decoy jet, Uh, but we did. We took off. We flew back. I'll tell you, it was the quietest flight I'd ever had. Nobody was flying. Air traffic control wasn't talking to anybody. Uh, We were practically the only jet in the sky between Omaha and Washington, D.C. And I recall uh, it was a clear day. The sun's setting behind us. We're heading dead east. The airplane's in a descent, and we could see the National Mall right off the nose through the windscreen. And then all of a sudden, the, this huge 747 pitches up and to the right. I darn near fall on my butt and an F-16 comes up from underneath us. And he had come up to inspect us and he'd come in so fast, he triggered the TCAS or the Tactical Collision Avoidance System. And the airplane maneuvered to avoid a collision. Uh, just an interesting tidbit. One last day of the excitement that we had to uh, endure. But that was the, uh, the 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 day of the mission. I wanted to share that with you. Never uh, have I experienced such uh, an event, um, but also to see the crews work under such stress uh, and listen to the national emergency over the air, tra- air traffic control uh, and hear such precision and professionalism under a day of such stress. Um, it is something to have been to be proud of, at least in that little portion of an otherwise horrid day. Moving on in our history. Uh, 2006 saw the most significant E4B modernization uh, when it embarked on a, a transformation from its analog communications to a digital fiber optic backbone, which began to uh, introduce robust broadband access uh, and to be able to support high data rates of voice and video capabilities at all classification levels. So, what's the future of the E4 looking like? Uh, the E4 is uh, is is in the process of being determine how to replace it. Uh, the Air Force is diligently looking at to develop uh, the replacement dubbed the SAOC or the Survivable Airborne Operations Center. This new SAOC will likely be a smaller aircraft, probably not four engines, and uh, will look to combine the NAOC mission with a looking glass mission as the Navy chooses to move its takamo mission back onto another platform. But in the meantime, we can rest comfortably in knowing that the E-4B airframes have a enough viable hours left in them to last to approximately 2033. Uh, but the phase out of all of these 747-200s, these are old 50-year-old jets that are being replaced. There just aren't that many of them left. And it's this is hampering sustainment because spare parts are getting to be harder and harder to find. So in any sense, again, the E-4 is one of our sentinels that still sits alert every day. All the time there is sixty-five people sitting alert somewhere in the country, waiting to do to do a mission on the worst of days, under the worst of circumstances, and in the most hazardous of all environments, a nuclear war. And that is why this airplane also has the nomenclature of the doomsday aircraft. I want to thank you for listening to today's Nuclear Knowledge Show. I hope you learned something new and valuable about deterrence. Nuclear knowledge is a product of NIDS, a 5013C organization dependent upon donations to provide this podcast. Every donation helps keep this and many other deterrence-related activities happening and helps to bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and our national deterrence. This podcast is produced weekly and each episode is released on Monday. And I invite you to check out our other podcast, The Nuclear View which you can catch it and all of our podcasts on our website at thinkdeterrence.com, thinkdeterrence, one word, dot com. I thank our producer, Ms. Kimberly Charrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative nuclear knowledge. A production of The National Institute for Deterrent Studies.